This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Jean Arnaud, the head of watches at Louis Vuitton. Jean, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me, Ariel. We had such a lovely time together in uh, in Switzerland and France, uh, recently seeing some of the latest watches from Louis Vuitton. You know, this for me, of course, is one of the biggest secrets in, in high-end watchmaking. Even though the brand Louis Vuitton is so popular, the watches are so niche. Is that is that by design? Uh, good question. Actually, um, I was surprised myself when I first uh, encountered uh, Louis, Vuitton, uh, Louis Vuitton high watchmaking, uh, which was uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I wouldn't say it's by design uh, because obviously we're trying to uh, to put our own name out there in, in the high watchmaking space, but uh, it is very confidential. Uh, we we because of the fact that we only distribute through our own stores and only have uh, uh, exclusivity within LV, LV stores. Um, we don't necessarily get the same focus or attention from uh, retailers uh, towards our high watchmaking. So. On, on that front, uh, it's it's probably that kind of that part of the design that might uh, that might affect our, our notoriety within the uh, the watch world, but uh, for sure, I mean we have some some amazing uh, amazing products. I'm uh, I'm sure you you've seen most of them. Uh, oh, that's crazy! The mm-hmm. stuff is so cool on on multiple levels, and I think part of the reason for the limited awareness has been the selective distribution just in. Louis Vuitton stores, and that's not even all of them. And, and the very fine watchmaking sometimes never hits a retail environment. It's only shown in private events. That's uh, what I was told. Yeah, exactly, hundred percent. So we uh, <clears throat> all of our uh, watches that are considered our high watchmaking pieces, we never present in store. Uh, we and we only have them up, uh, upon request. So should someone go in the store and say, "I want to see, uh, say, a Spin Time or uh, or even better, a Carpe Diem or a, or a, a Tourbillon Poisson Genève," uh, we'd have to actually ship it in from Switzerland uh, to uh, to show it to the client. So it might take a few days to to get there. But um, yeah, over and again, the second thing I wanted to say about that is the fact that. Uh, uh, we have also very limited production, uh, as you said earlier. We are part of a, of a big part of a big brand, uh, and uh, obviously the, the image that uh, is relayed is something massive with uh, with a lot of production. But uh, specifically on the on the watch front, uh, we're actually quite uh, quite small. Uh, I don't know if you've seen La Fabrique du Temps, but uh, as you see, there's not a lot of people uh, uh, there, and uh, we're, we're yeah, really- we went together. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we and and yeah. The, Have you seen uh, La Fabrique du Temps? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. No, for sure. I mean, again, we we work in a very uh, independent watchmaking kind of way. Uh, I don't mean that in a uh, uh, in a like derogatory term. But, you know, it's like one watchmaker, one watch. Uh, we finish everything in house. Uh, 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 the watchmaker themselves. Well, in most in most companies, you don't want to admit how small you are, but in watchmaking terms, sometimes it's a pride point. Yes, 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 for sure. I mean, obviously, we're trying to develop it as much as we can, but um, yeah, we we work in a very artisanal way, and I, I believe that we need to keep doing that uh, in in the uh, medium to long term. Really. 
Now, you're relatively new into this position. Mm-hmm. How many uh, years or months have you been in this in this position? Uh, uh, close to a year now. Okay, cl- close to a year now. And you know, through that time, of course, you've got to learn the brand and start to develop some ideas. Like mm-hmm. now that you've solidly entered the role and understand the day-to-day business and we can see a little bit beyond the pandemic, what would you say on a bigger picture level are, are some of your goals? I mean, because these brands, as you know, they always have to move. Like it's it's mm-hmm. incorrect. Like some of the brands are like, our goals is to do nothing forever. Like that doesn't work, <laughs> right? <laughs> sure. You know, what are your goals? I'm just curious. Well, I completely agree with you. I mean, um, our number one ambition today is awareness. Uh, we're getting there thanks to the Grand Prix that we uh, had last year. And... Um, both on the core business segment as well as the high watchmaking with the Carpedium. And uh, as you said, as the first point you said is uh, nobody's aware of Louis Vuitton high watchmaking and uh, we, we were getting there. So I think that's the first real ambition uh, to build that awareness within the watch community for, for people to understand how uh, broad and quite detailed our offer is and to see really the, the, the craftsmanship that goes behind it, the history behind it. You know, the fact that uh, Michel Navas and Rico Barbazini were the two behind uh, many of Jacob & Co's, many of uh, Frank Muller's, many of plenty of brands' complications. Yeah, the provenance is 100% there, no doubt. And uh, and most people don't know that, even with the, 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 the deepest watch nerds, uh, to, to, give, to give a bit of a... It's funny because I, I was watching an interview yesterday of... Uh, uh, Watchbox was conducting an interview of, of someone... And, uh, and the, 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 even the people at Watchbox, they were talking about Louis Vuitton watches at some point, and even them were, weren't aware that we were doing high watchmaking or the pieces that we made in the past and things like that. And I thought it was quite funny for, for, for uh, such experts uh, to... I mean, uh, look, it's the internet. Anyone can say they're an expert. It takes peer <laughs> review to be proven as one, right? Yes, that's true. I, I mean, I'm in the space where everyone now is an expert. Remember, I, I didn't become an expert, John, until people said, Ariel, I think you're an expert. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, then maybe I, I, I guess I am. Like, But today, people can just put the label, watch expert, and people are like, oh. Like, there's no, there's no police anywhere to make sure that people are titled. There's no accreditation, you know? Mm. I mean, bless the FHH for their all their watch testing. I'm still not sure it's made a big impact. And and, and I mean, apart from you, I think no one is an expert uh, just because you can, you can focus on so many things, right? Uh, let alone one single reference of vintage Rolex can, uh, can garner a lifetime of expertise to ensure that you know everything that's... Uh, that they've done and the different little differences and things like that, as well as, you know, becoming an expert on independent watchmaking or an expert on, on anything else. Well, I'll stuff. tell you what's interesting. And I think this is a particular interest to the luxury business community. And it's something that I sort of nerd out about. And it's the difference between the perception a brand has and the actual product it makes. Sometimes brands have a great product and amazing perception. And sometimes they have terrible perception and great product or vice versa. And I'm always interested as as to how these brands oriented themselves and what ends up happening. It's sometimes their fault. It's sometimes not. It's sometimes pop culture. But it, it's so fascinating that there's these disconnects. And sometimes you have not great products that have great perception and the margins there are incredible. And you have some brands that make amazing things that no one understands and is willing to pay for, even though they're incredible. Mm, 100%. Um, well, to, to, to talk about that specifically in the Louis Vuitton universe... Uh, you know, we've come out with watches that have uh, incredible technical 
uh, abilities as well as provenance in the past. Uh, two of them that spring to mind are our initial uh, Tambour Mysterieuse, which uh, was built uh, in collaboration with first Vianney Alter, then AP, APRP. Right. Um, and um, and then the, the, our twin choreograph is essentially a split second choreograph, which has a completely different uh, construction than what you can see in traditional split seconds, right? It's uh, we, have, we have four different balance wheels. Like it's a, it's it's a, it's a whole factory in there uh, in that specific. Yeah, yeah. That's when, when did you move over to La Fabrique Two Tomps? Obviously, eventually you purchased it, but when did you start working it with uh, Mr. Navas and his team? Uh, me personally, or Louis Vuitton? The brand, the brand, oh, the brand. Yeah. So uh, the brand purchased uh, La Fabrique Du Tomps in 2011, uh, and the, the Factory you see now, we've uh, been there since 2014. So I remember that the Mysterious, which I believe sort of began the high watchmaking journey. Mm -hmm. I don't remember anything before that really that was so audacious. That was a couple of years before that. And then within a few years, it looked like Louis Vuitton was, was of the opinion, we have to own this process. We have to have the manufacturer. This is the best way of doing it, right? Well, the, first, the first two in-house movements we've made, uh, apart from the tourbillons we've had before that, were in 2009. The first one was the spin time, the complication right. that uh, we're most known for, and the Mysterios. So both of them were done at the, at the same time in 2009, 2008, essentially around that time. Uh, and 2009 was spin time where uh, Michel Navas and Hecoba Bazzini were the f it was the f their first project for Louis Vuitton back when they were independently at the Fabrique du Temps. And uh, two years later, we uh, we integrated them within the team. Now, is there a big push to do more mainstream stuff? Because, you know, some of the things that we're talking about and you're the most proud of are amazing. They're expensive, but they're also very low production. But Louis Vuitton as a brand um, of course, has had many more entry-level or mainstream things and continues to do so. What is your personal interest in those watches versus the sort of very special, high-complication, you know, artisanal stuff? The first, like, one of the reasons why uh, the LV project really appealed to me initially uh, was the way in which people work at La Fabrique du Temps and that artisanal side of things. Uh, to build watches that are very Louis Vuitton in, in their in their approach in terms of the final design. So Carpe Diem is obviously not for everyone. Uh, and for the people that haven't seen it, it's a skull that essentially uh, opens and closes its mouth with a snake that rolls, rolls over it uh, and gives you the time like that. Uh, but as soon as you have it in hand, it's a watch you understand. Uh, I... I First saw it on images and uh, was uh, thought to myself, this is very Louis Vuitton, but not for me. And as soon as you see it in real life and you you see the watch, the craftsmanship that goes behind it, you realize, okay, this is an amazing watch, and this is uh, this could be something uh, in 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 my collection. Obviously, the price tag is quite uh, quite prohibitive for me, but <laughs> otherwise, apart from that, and that's the kind of system or atmosphere I want to keep for Louis Vuitton watches. That's 100% artisanal uh, craftsmanship uh, that many brands cannot boast. And on the other hand, uh, products that are very Louis Vuitton, and we're not going to try to, as you say, mainstream stuff, we're not going to try to replicate uh, what other brands have been doing. Uh, if we do something, we'll do it in our own way, um, because that's how we can differentiate ourselves as well from the rest of the industry. Um, obviously, uh, uh, 
is is it to my personal taste uh, or not? That's the, that's not the question. Uh, if every watch were to my personal taste, the watch watch business would be very boring. So, <laughs> I guess most good managers should say that, right? Because you know that there's a, it's a it's a big market. Let's talk about the the larger group for a moment here. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Louis Vuitton is part of LVMH, which is mm-hmm. Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, which is um, a large group controlled by your family. Mm-hmm. And inside the group is, you know, Zenith and Hublot and Tag Heuer, um, Bulgari, um, other companies that make watches. Uh, most of the brands, it seems, well, many of the major brands have a watchmaking side. Mm-hmm. And of course, Louis Vuitton does as well. Um, because there is a group of brands here, is, is there sort of a lane that you need to follow? Or are you free to sort of do whatever you want? Is there inter-brand competition? Uh, for people on the outside who could just simply don't know, what is it like um, making decisions within a group environment that has other watch brands? The way the group is designed historically is that every single brand is very independent from one another, even though they're in the same sector. So... Take uh, the the fashion business. Uh, Louis Vuitton and Dior work in very different ways uh, and have their own designs, designers, their own designs, and their own uh, uh, philosophy. Same thing goes for watches. So, uh, Tag Heuer, Hublot, uh, Zenith have three uh, very different ways of working and three very different uh, factories and and uh, and uh, uh, watchmakers, etc. Same thing for brands that are not traditionally watchmakers, Bulgari, Louis Vuitton, uh, Fendi also does watches. All of us work in very independent ways uh, and there aren't, aren't really rules to follow uh, apart from the fact that it has to be uh, uh, within uh, good economic terms. <laughs> we uh, <laughs> Gotta uh, make some money. I exactly. I mean, ab- apart from that, uh, honestly, there, we are all very free to, to explore are different universes. And that's what I think makes the strength of the group as well. Because sure, there is probably some competition uh, within the products, but generally speaking, uh, a client from Hublot is not the same from a client in Taguerre, than Zenit, than Louis Vuitton, than Bulgari. So um, I, I agree with this approach. And I think you'll agree that it's not the case everywhere. I know some of the other groups have a lot more of a central decision-making apparatus, which, you know, arguably might prevent brands from doing the same thing or wants people to fill different market segments or says, no, your brand doesn't do that, that brand does that. Um, Is that the wrong approach? And and if so, why? Um, I'm not here to comment on what other other brands... (laughs) Well, you're an opinionated guy. I'm sure you have something smart to say about it. But but, but I'll go back to the comment (laughs) I said earlier, which is... uh, uh, if I were the one uh, deciding upon my personal preference what watches would come out or not, it would be very boring and everything would look alike. So that's kind of the, the uh, I think, the edge of, uh, of the... Okay, I see. So if you have multiple people who have real decision-making power, you'll have a natural broad spectrum of products. Because if you have central decision-making, then you're going to have the same types of watches because it's decided by the same people again and again. Well, l- l- look at l- look at uh, the different different watches we have within the group, right? Would you see a Carpe Diem at Bulgari? Uh, would you see an Octo at uh, Louis Vuitton? Would you see a Chronomaster uh, at Tagore? I'm not too sure, you know. Uh, all of that is, is they all have their own specific niches. And that yeah. makes, uh, makes the strength. But they get along. The brands definitely seem to be oh, friendly with one another, which I think is a good thing. 
Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, look, you know me. I get to see what happens at at all the groups, and of course, you know, companies outside the watch industry, and it's it's so much cultural differences everywhere. Like corporations are not at all run the same. Mm. And, you know, from the outside, it's interesting because people are are making guesses about what it must like to be you. I mean, you have a you have a very public family and the and people say things about your family. I'm sure routinely on a regular basis, you guys are looking at one another and be like, where did they come up with this nonsense? Like they don't know us. Like what's what, what are they thinking? I mean, that must happen all the time, right? <laughs> I mean, yes and no. Thankfully, we're not uh, too uh, we're not looking at that too, too much. Otherwise, you'd get depressed quite quickly. <laughs> uh, the, the internet can be quite uh, quite brutal on people. I see that with uh, uh, real celebrities, uh, uh, especially yeah, especially at the moment. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, uh, we're not looking at that uh, very very much. Yeah, but it's 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 an important thing because you know collectively your family gets to make decisions for brands that you know are really market leaders uh like that and you know correct me if i'm wrong but you know lvmh is probably one of the most successful companies in in europe if not in the top three i mean that means that you carry the torch you are role models for so so many people and that you know that's a big responsibility just being a role model for that that population right I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't go that far. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Humility is good. I agree. No, but I mean, again, our our our, our goal collectively is to ensure that uh, we can uh, we can make great products uh, and and you know continue building the the efficiency of the group uh, on on multiple levels, and uh, that's kind of our ambition, really. Uh, me, me personally, uh, my, my ambition is to make uh, make great products for Louis Vuitton watches, and and it really ends there. Then, then the whole uh, cultural stuff and and uh, and broader broader spectrum, I, I don't really look at. Uh, well, I mean, it's kind of your job to be like a product specialist. I mean, like um, you said, you have to be responsible for <clears throat> beautiful, great things being made. If they're commercially successful, that's also good. But then the day you judge yourself and your peers are going to judge you by what you've done with the brand, the products you've made, uh, the 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 image that you've helped garner, you know, if you've added to it, and. That is something that only other specialists in your field can truly give you feedback on, and that's and that's that's ultimately how you're going to judge yourself, right? Mm. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, again, that's uh, that's my goal number one: uh, ensure that the product that comes out uh, next year, the end of this year, et cetera, et cetera, is something that uh, sure is commercially successful, but also uh, that people within the LV brand and the group. Uh, as well as the exterior, really appreciate. Uh, and knowing that uh, with that tiny little detail or that uh, small little chamfer here, uh, people recognize the fact that uh, so that certain product received a lot of attention and wasn't you know, done in a, in a quick way to, uh, to, to do a quick win uh, here or there. Do you have to reject a lot of products? Because I'm sure that every year there's pitches made to you from internal, external teams, and I'm not always sure how it works, but I'm sure that you have to say no more often than you say yes. Is that a very difficult process to reject things that you still think would be cool? One thing that uh, I'm focusing on today is making sure that uh, the collection really uh, builds, we build coherence within the collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wouldn't say that I say no very often because I'm, I'm <laughs> very excited about new watches in general. So of course, a lot of things do go through. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, there are things that don't fit within the collection. I feel uh, and things that do, even though they, uh, uh, you know, fit. They they 
complement a specific market niche or they uh, fit that space of the market. Um, that I feel is is a bit of a of a wrong uh, approach to uh, to creating product. Uh, it's not you're not going to create a product because someone gave you a price range of saying, okay, you need to find a, a one between this and this price. So uh, uh, then build the product. That that's where where I feel. Uh, but they used to do that. They used to have those matrices, you know, where yeah. it's just like uh, trying to build a product based upon these weird market specs. It never, it never worked. And and I mean that I feel is wrong. Uh, I don't know if it's wor- I don't know if that technique works commercially or not. Uh, to be honest, I haven't. Not, it has. It uh, hasn't in twenty five years. <laughs> but uh, naturally, I feel like it's a bit of a wrong process to 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 go to because then you lack creativity and projects. Uh, Crazy projects don't really go go forward, uh, which is super important for Louis Vuitton specifically. Well, I, I think you know Jean Claude Biver, who until recently mm-hmm. worked for for LVMH, he had a lot of great pieces of wisdom. And I think one of the things that he said that I've always admired and wish people listened to was, "You, you need to go with your gut instinct. There's no one who's going to help you make a decision. There's no market analysis you can do or numbers or formula. You just have to say, I think this is a good idea." I, I, I'm going to go ahead with it. And that's, you know, that confidence, you know, he used to say passion all the time. Part of that was confidence. Uh, that That's about that. You know, do you, mm. you agree? That's really the way to do um, it. You have to sort of go with your instinct. In my, in my short little experience, I certainly don't have the uh, 50 plus year experience of Jean-Claude. Um, but in my short little experience, I've, I've uh, experienced that as well. Uh, there is no black or white answer. And when there is a black or white answer, it means it's an emergency or something's going wrong, you know? Um, if, if everything's going okay and you have to make a decision on, on, on a new product or something like that, there's always going to be pros and cons to launching that product. And there's always going to be uh, a positive side and a negative sides to it. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think I really agree with him on that, on that front. Uh, it's, uh, it's really a sort of believing your gut and going for it at some point, you know, and, uh, there's also a second side to this, which is constantly perfecting a product to ensure that it reaches the maximum level. Um, sometimes, most of the time that happens and it's great, but sometimes for like a brand new product, something that really revolutionary, uh, you can't really go that far because you launched in 16 years kind of thing. Uh, if you try to really perfect every single side of things, sometimes you just got to uh, launch the product and then perfect it over time, which is what Rolex are doing as well uh, and have been doing since since their inception. Um, for instance, uh, the, the the Daytona caliber since 2000 has seen I don't know how many improvements uh, to it, you know, which means to them it wasn't a perfect product when they launched it in 2000. Uh, since then, they've constantly improved it and constantly tried to to increase, you know, the, the, the reliability of it. And they launched it without being 100% satisfied with it. Even though to us consumers, it's a, it's a great uh, reliable. <laughs> reliable. Well, they have like, they have like a, a forced research and development budget. Like no one has to make a pitch for it. They have those departments. And I think that's at least what I've seen structurally is very different there. They have these people in house and their job is literally all day long, figure out how to improve the product, how to improve the machines, how to improve the assembly, how to improve, you know, the base components. Mm. Whereas most brands only undergo that, uh, that analysis or that process if they, if they see there's a problem, whereas Rolex builds it in as an automatic cost. Mm, 100%. And, and 
then you realize that uh, should Rolex really behave in the uh, 100% approach of saying we're launching product that we're 100% happy with, they would never do so because they're constantly looking forward to improving it and uh, and, and changing the, the machine. Well, the consumer yeah. needs to buy something along the way. Mm, 100%. It's like with art. If the artist ever said, I'm only going to sell perfect paintings, nothing would ever come out. Yeah, yeah. 100%. <laughs> you have to be like, okay, you put in 50 hours, you're done, start on something else. Yeah, and I mean, it's always a question of perfecting it over time. Uh, constantly improving the product, constantly improving the the, the, the art in question and really trying to, uh, to to build that over time. Speaking of art, how is the restoration of Notre Dame coming? A good question. I haven't, uh, I haven't looked into it. Uh, I see the... Uh, the work's going on from uh, close by to the office, but apart right. from that, I don't know how far they are in the process. I'd, I'd have to check. Is it going to be nicer than before? Like I haven't actually been there in years, and then it was like burned down. I was like, oh no, I missed it. Like, <laughs> is it going to be nicer? From what I understand, they were talking about, you know, because the um, what they say, the flesh in French, I don't know who said it in English, uh, fell during the fire, and they right. were talking about. Um, restoring that uh, either identically or with a, a special new design uh, with a new uh, like designer etc i think they've decided to do it the same as it was before uh, which i personally prefer um, but apart from that i don't know where how it's going how it's going forward if they are far in the process or not i think it's a really uh, build a long building process and they're finding a lot of stuff in the process as well uh, because they have yeah i mean it's, it seems uh, like a, it's going to be a 20 year project yeah I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because there's a whole archaeological side to it as well. Yeah, they're having fun with it. You're, like you said, they're finding things. They're they're really taking their time with this thing. I mean, it's good, but it's funny because you walk by it and it looks like a permanent under construction thing. Yeah, exactly. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. You just you were just recently traveling in Japan, I believe. Uh, I'm sure to uh, have fun, but also visit some of the stores. Mm -hmm. um, Japan has been closed to a lot of parts of the world. Hopefully, it'll open up soon. What was it like as a Westerner being in Japan after being it being closed for so long? Funny you ask. It was very different. Not as uh, like. Uh, I went very dynamic uh, in for within the Japanese population, but not super dynamic with the, the tourists, obviously. And and as well, it's not a super friendly environment uh, when you when you go inside the country uh, at first uh, at first sight. You know, right. Obviously, they're very cautious about COVID, which is uh, which is a great thing. But uh, between the moment the plane landed and the moment I left the airport, there was around a, a four-hour gap 
uh, of tests, uh, processes, you know. Uh, oh my gosh. The, the, the different uh, papers to fill in and, and things like that. So it was, it was a long queue. But uh, again, uh, it's a, they're very cautious about their, their approach to that. And as well, you know, quarantine and things like that, uh, which have been lifted uh, since uh, recently for, for certain countries. But uh, overall, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, of a tough, uh, tough process. But generally, generally speaking, within the country, things have uh, really built, built back well, uh, even without the, uh, the, the tourists from all over the world. And, uh, and that's a great thing. I mean, hopefully other countries open up soon. Uh, I know the U.S. did la, la, last year, uh, and that was a, a great thing, at least for Europeans. And I hope uh, other countries in Asia follow, follow slowly. Yeah, I mean, we've never we've never come out of something like this, and it's like we're doing it too slow and too fast at the exact same time, right? Like, yeah. there's there's every everything seems to have a, a negative side effect to it. Mm. Um, but you got to go to Japan, and you know, I think it's important to just tell people how how big Japan is for Louis Vuitton. Not only is the entire country such a major market for Louis Vuitton in general, but at least historically, and I know you're trying to expand even more. Japan has been very sympathetic to the Louis Vuitton watch message. And as I understand it, a lot of the product went there. 100%, especially the high watch making. Um, And we see that as well within the industry in general. Uh, From what I understand, generally brands that start out tend to be quite uh, famous or small small brands with quite quite niche uh, watchmaking tend to be quite popular in Japan as a first step. And then expand to the rest of the world. And some never do. Some stay in Japan and they never get any bigger. And an, an example I have in mind is Dufour, uh, where his uh, his first uh, right. his first works were basically only well in Asia, obviously South Asia, but uh, mainly Japan as well. Simplicity is uh, where we're really really focused there. But yeah, our, our, why our, do you think that is? I mean, everyone has their own opinions about it, and Japan is an extremely dynamic and interesting culture. But what makes you you know what makes you think that that they're What's responsible for this incredible amount of not just watch love, but open-mindedness and, and interest in something that other countries can't seem to get into first? I mean, it's it's a good question. I, I I think it's obviously cultural, but also in the sense that uh, the they have a collector mindset within across categories. So you know, uh, shoes is the same. Uh, wine and spirits could be considered that as well. Uh, that really resonates with watchmaking in general. Uh, we know how uh, collecting uh, in, in in the watchmaking uh, my watchmaking world is really a, a paramount aspect to it, uh, and that is really transpires within the Japanese culture. I believe. Uh, again, I don't have a a crystal ball, and I, I don't know the Japanese culture uh, super well. But from what I understand, that's really the 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 side to it that which historically. Since uh, more than than you know, since centuries, Japanese have been collecting uh, stuff, uh, and watchmaking is the latest in 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 these trends, in, in these objects that they can collect. You know, I guess that makes sense. You know, I never really thought about it that way, and I uh, putting together certain pieces. I, I remember just sort of a funny story because I was always into Japanese toys and culture growing up, and I remember first time in Japan, I recognized that all those little figurines that they sell. People like buy. And put in these like little glass display cases, mm-hmm. even though they have these tiny little apartments and homes. So they these tiny homes, and they have these display cases full of these figurines that they don't do anything with. They're not action figures; they sit there. And I was like, they're collecting something. I, I didn't totally understand it, but from that moment, I recognized like 
this culture has an interesting relationship with stuff that not every culture does. No, 100%. And one thing that's uh, a, a second part of it, which relates to watchmaking is also the, the respect they have for uh, hand craftsmanship. Um, and that's also seen throughout history uh, where back in the day, uh, you know, when they used to have uh, katanas and like these huge swords, um, they used to handcraft, obviously, the, the, the blade itself, but also the ornaments around it. So, you know, the, the cover for it was all hand engraved, mostly. Uh, there was also very, very fine, detailed hand engraved parts. And, and that has been, uh, they've been collecting these little hand engraved parts uh, called tubas for for centuries and also people in the in, in the western world have have done so one of them that i that i have in mind is gaston louis vuitton which was uh, the great the grandson sorry of louis vuitton or great oh. uh who was a, a fond uh, explorer and um, and collector who has a collection of uh, thousands of, of these tubas which are the the protection for the, uh, the the Japanese katana blade, uh, and these when you see them in real life, it's crazy. They are they're super detailed, all hand engraved, all have different motifs and patterns. Uh, that is that the thing that looks? Is that the hilt? Uh, or is that like the the small thing that looks like a small knife? No, 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 no. It's like the um, you know how the round the, part, the kind yeah, of like round, round part, exactly, oval the, part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The oval part that slides through the that slides through the blade. I feel. I, yeah, like the hand protector part. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And all of these are super finely detailed and handcrafted, and and again, that's uh, not related at all to watchmaking, but I feel like it's it really really resonates. Watchmaking today resonates uh, to the Japanese people through uh, that history because uh, the the craftsmanship that goes behind it is quite similar. And I feel like for in the luxury business, it's it's uh, watchmaking is the only one with high jewelry, obviously, which uh, displays that level of, of fine craftsmanship uh, still. Right, and there is, you know, of course, many other cultures that are into that, but just oddly about Japan, they're they're open minded so quickly. Like as a consumer culture, they're so open minded to brand new things. And I wonder what makes other cultures sometimes more conservative. It's way more open minded than. Uh, America, for example, like you go to Japan and it's a test ground for all kinds of new stuff. Just go to Akihabara and you just like look at all the electronics. Like it's just like any random thing they thought would sell, they'll try. They don't care if it doesn't. They just want to try everything. You know what makes them so open-minded? Experimentation. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's it's quite crazy, and I mean many brands do that as well. At outside the luxury and, and inside luxury, the the most recent one I have in mind is Coca Cola, that uh, released a, a clear version of their own uh, of their own drink, and so it essentially <laughs> tastes like the like the real thing, but it's completely transparent like water, which is quite uh, quite surprising and only available in Japan. There's this sense of uh, Exclusivity uh, and, and that came that originally came out, I think, in the early '90s. It was called uh, Crystal yeah. Pepsi. Yeah, Pepsi did it, but I think Coke did it. In- oh, Coke never did it. Yeah, they fi- finally got to the clear stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Japan likes that. They like that. They love novelty. And I, look, I like novelty as well. And that's isn't that an interesting differentiation point in the luxury industry? There are those people, be them consumers or managers, that want something new, decidedly new, and some people are like, no, I want something old. And it's like sometimes the industry is split down that middle. But I feel like also part of the Japanese culture has a lot of exclusivity built into it. So 
Many brands also bring uh, exclusive products for certain regions of Japan, uh, let, let alone uh, Japan exclusives. We all know the Patek Japan exclusives and other brands that do that. But um, for instance, uh, KitKat has their own, uh, you know, city exclusive per city in Japan. So they have a, a, oh, wow. a, a KitKat exclusive, a Osaka KitKat exclusive, and a Nagoya KitKat exclusive. It's actually quite, uh, quite impressive and surprising. And so for Louis Vuitton, what did you learn from the market? Obviously, you go to the stores, you ask them, what can we do? What kind of stuff mm. should we make? And, you know, what, what, is the, what is the Japanese market telling you? The Japanese market has been quite open, uh, as you said, uh, always open to Louis Vuitton watchmaking and, uh, and historically has always been uh, very strong for us. And what we've learned uh, through that uh, pandemic and to the, the exit of the pandemic is also a big push towards the uh, high-end segment and really high watchmaking. Uh, that's across the world, but specifically in Japan. We really managed to to build uh, our uh, our collections thanks to Japan and and thanks to their appreciation of our hand uh, craftsmanship. So again, a, b- a bit like everywhere in the world, what Japan is asking us for is really more storytelling around La Fabrique du Temps and really to to give and tell that story, give that story out there for people to understand what uh, Louis Vuitton watchmaking really is uh, and and not uh, not what people think it is essentially and that's I think the, the the main goal for more people to understand that and to be to be uh, aware of it in, in general now these are messages about you know watchmaking and culture and all these are dense messages that require a lot of education and today's mm-hmm you know, world of advertising and marketing, you have to, you have to tease these messages a little bit faster so that people may be incentivized into discovering more, you know, for Louis Vuitton watches, if you had to think about advertising slogans and quick little fun messages, you know, what would they look like? What have you been brainstorming and thinking about? Well, that's a, that's a, uh, a question I haven't answered yet, I have to admit. Uh, but it's okay, it's okay. It's a hard question. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we we are lucky to be within a, a brand which is a, a advertising powerhouse and really knows knows what they're doing on that front. So we we really rely on these teams to to find a good aspect for us on the on the watchmaking front. But again, I don't want the message to be. Uh, false or you know a bit too artificial um, I think beyond traditional advertising what is really important for us is uh, getting that uh, one message out there getting the message that Le Fabrique du Temps exists how it works make people visit Le Fabrique du Temps allow our clients and and, and uh, even prospective uh, prospective clients to come understand that we do everything uh, in a very different way than others, uh, or actually in a very similar way than smaller uh, smaller uh, brands. And that we're capable of doing stuff that other brands can't. Uh, for instance, we do uh, product from the ground up for, for our customers. We can do a, a full custom piece, a custom movement, custom case, custom dial, custom uh, 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 hands, everything. Uh, Depending on our on our client needs, if someone if someone wants something, you know, you want a uh, uh, I don't know a, a split second chronograph uh, with a, a, a perpetual calendar and a repeat, a minute repeater, 
if you want, we can do it. You know, if you have, if, if you're willing to wait a couple of years for us to develop it and make it, we can, we can, and we'll make it as a unique piece for you. That's the kind of thing I really want to communicate on. And it's not your traditional way of, um, of advertising. It's not, uh, you know, billboards or things like that, but I feel like it's the, uh, it's our first step towards, uh, uh getting a, a little piece of the uh, of the market. Have to help me understand here the type of customer that for them that's a really you know interesting thing to do because like you said it takes a couple of years and you're spending a lot of money because you ostensibly have to develop some new machinery like developing a new movement is by no means you know simple. Mm. So who's the type of person who for them this is an amazing thing to do they have something absolutely unique of course but like you know tell me a little bit about that demographic. It's actually quite interesting, and um, we've had a few over the years. What's particularly fascinating with that kind of customer is the fact that um, other brands won't do that kind of service for them, or won't do that kind of service at all. Uh, I can think of many on top of my head that I won't cite, which will just plainly refuse uh, a, a dial change on on the watch. Or I mean, that's on, most brands. Most brands yeah. aren't going to do that. Um, but one axis in which Louis Vuitton is famous for, and we really try across our different categories to, to bring that forward, is personalization to whatever extent. It can be from, you know, what, uh, what everybody does, which is a, a small engraving on the, on the case back, all the way to uh, uh, the, those custom pieces. But the customers themselves really look for something that, are, that is different, uh, have a, most of the time a design in mind, and really want a one-to-one -one experience with us uh, because we obviously uh, it's not it's not an easy process to go through because you know there's a lot of back and forth with the with the customer to make sure that it really fits within his uh, his or hers uh, requirements, and we we're really trying to push the collaboration on that side as much as we can. So you know having the uh, the, the the client uh, come over to La Fabrique du Temps to have a a full afternoon uh, all together to really build that watch together for the for uh, as a first step you know see some initial drawings back and forth for a couple of months to ensure that we that we really agree on the design on complications and things and then uh, settle the uh, the the, uh, the timing aspect of it you know saying okay well we'll be able to build that movement in that uh, that long um etc cetera, etc cetera. and again we leave the customer, the choice of saying, okay, do you want uh, us to publish, uh, to, to talk about that watch? Can we talk about it? Can we not talk about it? Do you want us to show the design or not to the public? Do you want to keep it private, et cetera? And everybody has, has their own opinion. It's really their project with us. Uh, and that's kind of the goal that we're trying to push forward. And I think it's, it's something a lot of people uh, like because most brands, especially nowadays with the, uh, the, the craze around watchmaking uh, are not providing a, a uh, as good of a customer service as as was done uh, in the past, you know. I, I think it's very interesting to hear you, uh, of course, talking about these sort of one-of-a-kind projects. You know, they're, 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 they're super time-consuming. And I'm sure that along the way, you have to sort of reach out to the consumer, say like, hey, we're still working on it. Here's, you know, here's some chocolates or something, <laughs> you know. Luxury is so much about service as well. You know, what do you get to experience while you're a customer because of course it's not just the watches it's never just the watches you know like you have you you probably have a whole built-in hospitality experience i mean la fabrique du temps as you've seen uh is uh, is very uh very good at hosting uh, our our clients 
and specifically for the one-off projects, I mean, we, we really try to give attention to the, to the client as, mo- as much as we can. And most of them, which um, go towards that kind of service, are really passionate about watchmaking as much as us uh, and uh, really want to be involved in the process. So we invite them as much as we can as, uh, all along the way. So uh, an example I have in mind is um, inviting the customer over for, uh, uh, you know, when, whenever the watchmaker is regulating the, uh, the gongs for his, uh, for his minute repeater or things like that, you know, and just to see that process go forward or even send videos throughout the process saying, okay, well, you're what the watchmaker is working on that part of the movement. Uh, uh, look what he's assembling. Oh, he's, put, he's putting the hands on the dial or, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, actually regulating the, uh, the, um, the movement. There are plenty of ways in which we are we're, uh, animating uh, the, the the customers throughout that. Uh, that you journey. know, you could have a whole Instagram channel per production of a watch, like a private channel that's just for the consumer. You see pictures and little videos idea. and updates, right? <laughs> that's a very good idea. Mm. Yeah, you should do that. It wouldn't cost anything, and that would be an easy way for them to to, and they could share it to whoever they want. Yeah, and, and again, like one of the things that's. Uh, we're really pushing forward is the one watchmaker, one watch, such that the the, the client specifically for that that kind of project, or even for a uh, way simpler spin time uh, spin time movement, can know what watchmaker did uh, his or her watch, and uh, how long he or he or her worked for it, uh, worked on it rather, and uh, you know if uh, by any chance the watch has a problem, we know exactly who to come back to and 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 who to see uh, for 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 the issue, you know. And that's kind of uh, the sort of one-to-one process that we're really trying to build. Uh, and, uh, and I think we're the only ones doing that today, really. Apart from per- probably very small independents uh, that I'm probably not aware of. But otherwise, really, like in, in terms of the uh, big brands in general, I think we're the, uh, we're the only ones. Well, you know, I love these stories because I get to tell them to people that are shocked by it. Like the, your rank-and-file watch collector doesn't know these things about Louis Vuitton. And, you know, when I have conversations with them trying to explain to them, you know, what Louis Vuitton watches really is, it's like they're shocked. And I love being able to shock them. Like they never would have guessed. Many of them don't really know yet. You're right. You're still in an emergent emergent state. I, I know about the brand because I do what I do and I know it in and out. But your average person out there just has no idea. And it's great because you get to shock so many people like you know in 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 a in a good way um and and that, and that's great and i want to change change topics right now and go to the other end of the spectrum which is the now it's a collection of louis vuitton smartwatches mm-hmm. and i have to say i've had to defend this practice to so many people, so many people are like, oh, but come on, really luxury smartwatches? Even when people have to, you know, get rid of them after a couple of years, I'm like, yeah, it's a really big thing. Like, it's so weird that even though it's successful in the market, you still need to defend it. You know what I mean? Like, what do you say to people when they, when they like, don't understand how successful it is? Mm, I think watch, like smartwatches and mechanical watches have two very different purposes. Um, absolutely and and a mechanical watch client will certainly in most of the case not necessarily be a smartwatch client uh, i mean the mechanical watch client in the sense that we look at things saying okay well he he he's buying a, a luxury smartwatch the person that's buying a luxury smartwatch is not going to be the same that buys a luxury uh, mechanical watch uh, necessarily and i think like 
both of them have their own uh, markets and very quite distinct in, in a way. And specifically as to the credibility of uh, smartwatches within the, uh, the, the mechanical watch segment, what I, what I answer most people is saying these are two very different products. Just the way uh, uh, you know a, a suitcase is very different from a handbag. You know, but they're both uh, containers to put your stuff in, uh, and 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 in a way. That I feel is a bit of the same with with smartwatches. Smartwatches, mechanical watches have mainly uh, say the same functions. Okay, you can have complications added to them, but mostly it's just to give you the time, uh, um, hours, minutes, and is mostly a display. Nowadays, mostly a display of, of craftsmanship than anything. Uh, it's not necessarily a, a way of uh, accurately telling the time because we all have our phones for that. Whereas the connected business is a lot more around the modern day sports watch. Uh, we all talk about uh, stainless steel sports watches nowadays, but the true sports watch I feel is a connected watch. Uh, look at right. old Tag Heuer uh, and even us. And that it gives you a lot of data about your health and your your daily activity that uh, another wearable would not necessarily be able to do so. Uh, sure, you have probably have Fitbit that does that as well. Yeah, but the Fitbit's ugly, and the Louis Vuitton connected is not. And that's a big deal. And it's for us specifically, we really try to focus on the design aspect of things uh, and really try to make the most beautiful watch we can uh, within with that uh, smartwatch technology. And again, uh, as I said previously, we're going to keep, um, we, we're not 100% satisfied with the product because we're going to keep improving it over time, right? Uh, we really want to build that uh, that, that segment. Yeah, like just but, like Apple and Samsung and everyone else. Exactly. And and we 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 really want to to break from uh, other big conglomerates uh, such as Google, for instance, or Apple, which uh, don't necessarily put the same focus on the software side of things that we uh, that that that, uh, that they used to. Um, and so we decided to build our own software, uh, build uh, obviously our own watch, and all the uh, all the internal components is like is really made uh, uh, custom made for us. And to be honest, a lot of people criticize smartwatches by saying, okay, like it's a piece of technology, it's not going to last that long. Our goal long term is to ensure that these smartwatches last as long as they can, uh, as long as possible, 5, 10, 15, 20 years even. And that I think is kind of the future for us, at least, of, of our technology. We're not here to sell a product which is going to... Um, be uh, how do you say uh, uh, obsolete in two years because it's not our business model, right? The business model of Louis Vuitton is to sell products that we we, we will be able to service. The, even the first products of Louis Vuitton in 18, uh, 1854, we are still able to service them today. And the goal is the same for uh, our smartwatches. Obviously, we're not uh, we're not there yet, but we'll get there, uh, and we're slowly, you know, incrementally getting there. And so we're gonna. Uh, really focus on that longevity side of things um, first of all, and then uh, again, people for the craftsmanship side of things saying, "Oh, you know, it's not uh, it's not the same as a mechanical watch. You don't have the same level of craftsmanship, etc." Um, people underestimate the number of components, the number of parts, and the real um, difficulty it is to uh, make uh, make a product uh, of that sort. We're not Apple. We're not making. Uh, 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 our product in the millions, so we can't have the same uh, production cycle as they do, or production um, 
uh, we, we can't really have we can't really work in the same way. So we're really working on the artisanal side of tech, the same way we're working on the artisanal side of uh, of, of watchmaking, which is quite surprising. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, but uh, but yeah, we're uh, we're really building that uh, over over the years. I think that you put all that very eloquently. Congratulations for that, because it's a difficult thing to articulate while mm-hmm. defending mechanical watchmaking, but also saying you're interested in this new segment. It's a very difficult line to cross. So uh, honestly, my compliments on doing that very well. <laughs> but tell me a little bit more about software development, because I've you know, dabbled in that a little bit myself. It's not at all the same as making a watch. Um, is that something that makes you crazy? Is it something you like? Uh, you know, I mean, because I mean, yeah, again, it, talk about it. it. In, in, initially, uh, I... I wanted to to before watchmaking and before all of that. I really wanted to work in the uh, uh, engineering space in general, and, and coding was kind of I mean not necessarily software, uh, okay. uh, UX kind of software, but uh, still building. Yeah, I mean I, I really enjoyed that kind of thing. So both sides really appealed to me uh, personally, and I. To be honest, when I first arrived at Louis Vuitton and they were telling me, okay, we have this watch coming out in three months, uh, we have our own operating system, I was thinking to myself, oh my God, this must be a uh, uh, a serious uh, investment in development, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. obviously it is, but I feel like it's, it's a good way for us to um, really work in our own independent way, just like um, Louis Vuitton is doing in their... Uh, physical products really uh, so our I, I treat the software side of things now the same way as we would treat uh, the f- physical products that we're coming out with so uh, we're really trying to build it uh, as uh, simply and reliably as possible and really try to make it within our own ecosystem our own uh, uh, area to ensure that we can really provide the best service and the best functionality to our to our end user that's, that's and, 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 and I think what you're saying is so important. It's in, in-house, you're updating it yourself. You're mm-hmm. making sure that it's going to get better and better over time, similarly to how Tag Heuer does it with their connected. And I try to tell people on the outside, it is a very different thing to outsource this to some subcontractor that makes generic smartwatches than taking it in-house. And that is the right way is doing in-house. And so I think that the uh, awareness people have of what it's like to make smartwatches will get better. It's just, you know, still a little bit ahead of its time. But uh, again, I think you're doing it the right way. But I would I would say continue to push forward as much on the software element. You, you know, the, the, the latest one, the light up, I think what's so fun about it is that you understood that playing with it is such a big component. You want to be able to switch out the screen, have it light up. Uh, it, not necessarily super intellectual things, but definitely fun things that I think I immediately noticed. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's the heart and soul of, uh, of uh, Louis Vuitton as well. Uh, I, I um, really um, were trying to build that uh, and build that fun aspect of, of our product as much as we can um, and really try to be different than than, than other people on that uh, on that front really um, we're not trying to make a serious uh, a very serious piece even though we're, we're building the software very seriously and we're going to keep uh, adding features to it which are uh, I believe essential but then again we're really trying to have that sort of uh, LV twist and uh, and very fun uh, playful aspect to it which is um which is quite unique. 
I'm going to tell you a funny story. This happened when the first Apple Watch came out. And I did two different things. It was interesting how they, they went very differently. The first thing is I went to Switzerland wearing the steel version of the Apple Watch. And I went to a couple manufacturers wearing it in a traditional watch. And people were like, why, how could you wear that in here? You're a traitor. <laughs> like all these pretty negative things. <laughs> okay. Then a couple months later, I do another trip similar. And instead of wearing the steel version, I am now wearing the gold version. You remember the gold <laughs> Apple Watch that came out? You're, you're, okay. you're one of these clients. <laughs> so, so I was wearing the gold one. And and the funny thing was, is the reception was completely opposite. Oh, it's gold. It's so it's like it's like our stuff. It's okay. And because it was gold, <laughs> the people at the factories were okay with it, and no one said anything bad. And I was amazed. I was amazed that just one version being expensive, they felt okay with it, and the other one was like they were hissing at it like cats. <laughs> That's really that's really interesting. I mean, I remember that, that that one didn't last long, if I remember correctly. It's no, a, they made it one year only, just as a <laughs> debut product. Here you go. You know, it's the you, you've got a very rare Apple product. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I, it's <laughs> it's just amazing to me that you know the industry was so close to it. When I think we all agree, the benefit of young people. I mean, you grew up around watches, so I think you had a little bit of a head start. But most people if they're going to become watch lovers, it's going to be as adults, right? It's not necessarily going to be automatically growing up around watches. Mm. And we have to think of everything possible of making this stuff somehow relevant to the younger generation and becoming familiar with wearing something on your wrist and looking what is on other people's wrists and thinking about straps and taking it on and off and feeling naked when there's nothing on your wrist. This all translates into the behavior of wearing mechanical watches later or as leisure watches or as social watches or whatever. Because I don't like to socialize with a smartwatch. I hate it. Mm, I completely agree. And I mean, I, me personally, uh, on the smartwatch side, what I, what I really um, uh, don't enjoy is the constant notifications and things like that. I understand the practicity of it. But I like knowing that uh, when I know when my watch is vibrating and something's uh, happening, I want to know exactly what I'm receiving or, or what notification is coming up. And uh, I like having my phone in my pocket on silent and, and having and having the liberty of checking it when I want to check it rather than constantly being reminded that something happened. Oh, I turn off notifications. For years now, every smartwatch I wear, I turn off like email, phone call, notification, maybe phone call, but everything else I turn off. It's all mm -hmm. annoying. Yeah, and then that side of things, uh, that side of thing, I don't really like. And apart talking about the socializing aspect of it, I agree. I mean, obviously, we're part of a uh, a very niche watch community, so a lot of people are looking at what you're wearing on your wrist, and um, uh, and I really enjoy telling the stories of the watches that uh, I, I might be wearing. Uh, obviously, nowadays there are more Louis Vuitton than than, than anything, but um, the stories behind them and really the the the, the way they're built, uh, where I've worn them, what I've done with it. I mean, that's, that's a great thing to tell, which it's not necessarily the same storytelling you can say out of a, out of a smartwatch, especially when you have to change it every, every two, three years, uh, talking about the, the, the Apple Watch, right? I'm actually really excited about what you're going to do over the next few years, especially since you said that you want to increase awareness. Uh, that means they get to tell a lot more stories about these crazy things. You know, just a few weeks ago when you showed me the Carpe Diem was the first time I got to see this, you know, pretty 
pretty incredible machine. I mean, really, the the work that went into it was just insane. And so some of the treasures that that Louis Vuitton watches is responsible for thinking about, you know, let alone making, is uh, is incredible. Um, Jean, we're almost out of time right now, but I just wanted to give you one quick opportunity to preview anything which is coming up to anyone, to you know, to everyone. Uh, anything you're excited about? Just you know, give people a very brief roadmap of what to expect next from Louis Vuitton watches. Some some cool stuff is coming up at the end of the year, uh, and obviously, our goal long term. First of all, we're looking really far ahead as to how we can build a collection and, and, and focus on our mechanical side of things. Uh, we're, we will double down on what we've been doing these last, uh, these last few years, trying to really keep that audacious spirit, uh, Carpe Diem being the great example of that, and as well the, 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 uh, for the light up connected and the light up mechanical, um, the Quantum. We're going to keep doing that because that's, uh, what we feel is most appropriate to uh, the Louis Vuitton universe. Uh, that's that's what uh, you can expect in the next few years is really continuing to to build complications and uh, very um, finely crafted mechanical marvels, which are very Louis Vuitton. Uh, we're not gonna uh, tread on anyone's toes by doing stuff which is. Uh, uh, similar to the rest of the industry, simply because we've already built ourselves a small niche, which we're quite comfortable in, and and we we really want to build that message forward. Uh, and that's kind of uh, that's kind of the way uh, we want to look uh, look ahead. This is long term, and the short term end of the year. Uh, we're we're celebrating the uh, the 20 years of watchmaking at Louis Vuitton, so we'll have a few events uh, going going around the world. It's quite uh, it's going to be quite fun. Exciting! I look forward to seeing it. Thank you so much. My guest has been Mr. Jean Arnaud, head of watches at Louis Vuitton. Jean, thank you so much for thank joining on this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blog2watch.com. <laughs>